What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Black GI. Is it fair to serve more than the white Americans that sent you here? Nothing is more confused than to be ordered into a war to die without the faintest idea of what's going on. Spike Lee has made a Vietnam War movie, and as you might expect, it is unlike any Vietnam War movie that has come before. Coming to Netflix this weekend, Lee's De Five Bloods is about four black vets returning to Vietnam to search for the remains of their squad leader and for buried treasure. We've got a review, plus our top five Spike Lee shots. It's all ahead on Film Spotting. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome to Film Spotting. Later in the show, we'll revisit a top five that we paired with the last Spike Lee movie we reviewed, 2018's Oscar-winning Black Klansman. We share, Josh, our top five Spike Lee shots. One of the more fun top fives we've done, I think, over the course of this show. Certainly one of the more difficult, just in terms of pairing a list down. So many great shots to choose from. And this time, we will get to a little bit of listener feedback that we weren't able to share back in August of 2018. So you'll get our top five Spike Lee shots and some of your favorite Spike Lee shots as well. I love it when we get to the nitty gritty details with our top five. So yeah, not favorite Spike Lee movies, not favorite Spike Lee scenes necessarily, but specific shots. That was a fun one. Before that, Lee's latest, The Five Bloods, won't be slowed down by COVID-19 or curfews. It's on Netflix right now, and we've got a review. Being back here, it is not easy. You broken man. So are you blaming yourself? You don't even know. We've been dying for this country from the very get. Now the time is There are things to really We give this call to our people. This is the moment for a Spike Lee film, Adam, as we're amidst weeks of protests across America, across the globe, really, in response to a handful of high-profile cases of police brutality exposing systemic racial injustice. But is Defy Bloods, Lee's new film, up to that moment? That's the big question about the prolific legendary director's latest, which stars Delroy Lindo, Clark Peters, Isaiah Whitlock Jr., and Norm Lewis as four African-American Vietnam War vets who returned to Vietnam decades later. They've got two goals. Honor their fallen squad leader, played by Chadwick Boseman in flashbacks, by finding his remains, and also 
locate the cache of confiscated gold bars they had discovered but weren't able to take home the first time. We'll get into the treasure of the Sierra Madre and Apocalypse Now connections at play here, I'm sure. Briefly previewing this review on last week's show, Adam, I mentioned how much I was looking forward to seeing Delroy Lindo again in particular. I want to get to that big question I posed about the Five Bloods being up to our current moment by starting with a smaller question about his performance. He plays Paul, the most haunted member of the group, I think you could say, carries guilt about his tour of duty, dreams of ghosts. He's easily angered, prone to threatening violence, especially when triggered by interactions with Vietnamese citizens when the men return. So Paul's clearly suffering from PTSD, and Lee characterizes this, and Lindo plays it with a capital P, T, S, and D. Along with the other screenwriters, Kevin Wilmot, Paul DeMeo, and Danny Bilson, Lee gives him scene after scene where he loses his temper at someone or blows up or just gets into another confrontation. They also make him a reactionary conservative and saddle him with a MAGA hat, which, point taken, Only a black man with PTSD could support Trump, I suppose. But still, Hmm. this positions him as an extreme character. And Lindo doesn't back away from that, but doubles down with an extreme performance. For the first half of the film, I really wasn't on track with all this, even as I loved much of what else Lee was doing, including cutting away at various moments to archival photos or footage whenever someone from African-American history, especially with a military connection, is mentioned. But. Then we get one scene that turned everything for me. It's Hmm. a scene of the year candidate, actually. And it's one that's entirely anchored on Lindo. This is after Paul goes full Colonel Kurtz, we could say. He separates from the others to literally cut his own path through the jungle. I think it's key for me, at least, that he's weary and tired by this point, so he can't Mm -hmm. be quite as bombastic as he was before. And we watch him exhaustedly hack away in this reverse tracking shot. Here we are, spikely shots, right? With Lindo walking towards us, looking into the camera, and detailing how being sent to Vietnam ruined his life. Here's his quote, you made me malignant, he says at one key moment. Later, after detailing all that he survived, you will not kill Paul. The U.S. government will not take me out. And right there, for me, the whole movie not only coalesces as its own formidable piece of work, the history we've learned about African-American men being sent to Vietnam at a higher ratio than whites and of being sent to frontline duty more than whites when they got there, all of that coalesces with what the whole world has been learning in recent years about the discriminatory treatment of African-Americans by another branch of the U.S. government, local law enforcement. This was the Spike Lee movie I was waiting for. This was the Delroy Lindo I was hoping for. What about you, Adam? I do want to hear your take on Lindo's performance, if you struggled with it at all, and, of course, what you think about this film as a whole. Hmm. Well, that's all very well said, and it's funny. I was going to devote some time, I figured, off the top of this discussion to a bold choice that Spike Lee makes that's directly related to casting— that I felt was going to be the litmus test for this film, for your experience with this movie as a whole. But I'm so glad you decided to start with Lindo because I think the real litmus test is rooted in something even more fundamental and combustible, and that is Lindo's performance. And I'm really glad that you were able to get on track with it. I was not, even though I had a very similar reaction to that scene. I think it's, if not the high point of the film certainly in the conversation. And 
I would say, we'll get into this a little bit more here in a second, it's not just that he's weary and tired. For me, I think the key point is that he's alone in that scene Mm -hmm. as well. So it is a big performance, right? I'm going to cover some of the same ground you already have. I think that that can be forgiven and appreciated, and it can be retrospectively even reappraised for a lot of reasons once you've made it through the film and meditated on it some more. And I'm going to say something really obvious here. Delroy Lindo is a really fine actor, right? And truthfully, sure, I I find the the response to a performance is something that can change pretty dramatically for me, even just with a second viewing. When the the size of it and the wallop of it is lessened by being more comfortable with that character, all the characters in general. I want to acknowledge too, and you touched on this, that part of the challenge in evaluating this performance. And dialing into the character Paul he plays is that he is the most divisive character in the movie. He does wear that MAGA hat proudly. And within this group, he's the provocateur. He's the antagonist. He definitely has his own agenda, his own mission. And he's not going to be denied no matter what compromises of any kind that he may have to make. He is easily triggered. I think you said it well. So first, you have to separate that he's not very likable, and is that what I'm responding to as a viewer when he dominates every scene? And he really does. And you could say, well, that's this group's dynamic. Every group has a domineering presence, someone who kind of chooses to establish themselves as an alpha and is always making it about him. We don't really get a full sense of this maybe in the flashbacks. To an extent, we do. He was like that before, I think, is what we are probably to understand. He's more damaged now, and I think to your point about the... MAGA hat that he wears and the joke that only a black man who has PTSD could vote for Trump, they all are suffering from PTSD to an extent. I think that 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 is made very clear and they didn't vote the same way that he did. But definitely, we do learn more about him and that mission, as I said, and it suggests that his pain and the depth of it is unique. So more than the others, I'm acknowledging you can say He's suffering from PTSD on a more extreme level, and that's why he, as a performer, is so combative and he's so unpredictable. I can process all of that, Josh, everything I just expressed, and still say that we have to acknowledge that the pain and the trauma and his alphaness could have been expressed in a myriad of ways with a myriad of choices by an actor. And I just wish it had been calibrated so I didn't feel like in virtually every scene truly that every other performer's choices were being stifled by his. Hmm. And that's how I felt, watching every interaction with this group of Defive Bloods. And I'll throw in that another fact of this performance is that Lindo isn't just the biggest in terms of his volume, the volume his voice hits and the mannerisms of his physical choices, he's physically the biggest man of the group too. So that amplifies everything. He is the most intimidating presence, just just being Delroy Lindo. And as a thought exercise, as I was trying to come to terms with why this performance did derail me so much watching this film, I keep thinking what my experience would have been if Lindo and maybe Clark Peters, also an incredible actor, had switched roles. Mm. If you had the smaller presence, 
who we know from The Wire and Treme and other performances, his persona is more bookish and more thoughtful and more reserved and quiet if he played the man full of rage and pain. Yeah, yeah. And you had the the naturally bigger presence play the more unassuming, thoughtful, sensitive role. Maybe maybe my experience with this entire film would have been different even though there is so much to appreciate about it which I know we'll get to. Wow, that's a that's a really interesting scenario. You could say the same with Isaiah Whitlock Jr., I think. You know, he's he would bring a, an entirely different quality as well. And maybe that speaks to, you know, the fact that there are too many characters to keep track of to some degree in this movie, mm-hmm. I feel. Um, I, I also feel that you don't really get to know Norm Lewis's character very well at all. No. And you are right that because Lindo is dominating every scene, sometimes the others get um get lost. Clark Peters gets a little bit, he gets some scenes of his own where he's separate from the group and we learn a little bit more about his background that I think helps him to register more strongly than some of the others. Um, But you're right. This is, or here's another thought experiment. What if this was just Paul's story? You know, what if, what if mm-hmm. he had somehow, um, we should mention they bring in Jonathan Majors as Paul's son, uh, another right. actor we were both interested in in following in this film. He comes a surprise visit because he's concerned about his dad, Paul, his, his mental state. So he shows up in Vietnam and ends up tagging along. And so there's another character who we yeah. have to kind of, and I think there's just, there is so much going on. Lee and his screenwriters have packed into this. Some of it gets lost, especially amidst the bombast of of Lindo. But for me, yeah, I will— And just real quick, too, Josh, real quick on that point before you go on, it also feels like maybe another plot contrivance and complication, just even adding the sun into the mix, as much as I appreciate Jonathan Majors as a performer, and I think he's doing solid work here, if not the same work that we love so much in The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Everything about that relationship was another thing ratcheting up a lot of tension, but also, for me anyway, I suppose, distracting from what is the real mission here. Yeah. I guess for me, the reason why I I really focus not only on that moment of Lindo's, uh, that reverse tracking shot, but also why it is a, a way of unlocking the film for me is because I sometimes need that in a Spike Lee movie where there is so much coming at us so fast. Um, so many references and so many characters, so many plot lines. And sometimes for me, and again, maybe this is just my own cultural background, I am working to keep up. And then there'll be a moment where you see how everything does weave together as it does for Lindo. And so he's speaking, Paul is speaking from personal experience and you suddenly see what his personal experience means in light of the civil rights movement, in light of the Vietnam War, in light of even, you know, things like Muhammad Ali. The first image we see in this film is Muhammad Ali talking about um, resisting the draft, and which mm-hmm. is something I was well aware of. But now seeing someone like Paul talk about his experience by getting drafted, uh, those it just clicks for me. And and so I do think you're right. I am doing what you said a little bit is kind of retrofitting um, his story, Paul's and Lindo's performance on the rest of the film. But for me, uh, it, it does kind of justify that performance to a degree. I'd probably be praising it more, though, if it was in a different register all the way through. Mm-hmm. I, I do give you that. Uh, can yeah. I, I want to ask you another question because this is one where I, again, like trying to keep up with Lee, um, who's just so, sort of a brilliant, quick filmmaker. It took me a couple of scenes before I realized that these older actors or the men in their older age were 
being played by those men in the flashbacks yeah. alongside Chadwick Boseman. So they're right. in their, you know, 70s or whatever, 60s and 70s, but in uniform in Vietnam alongside Boseman. And and what did you make of that? Did, did you think that was effective or just too jarring? <laughs> Definitely the latter, unfortunately. And I even looked up the ages of these actors and I did the math and Norm Lewis at 57 brings the average age of Defive Bloods down from almost 67 to 64 to just over 64. So yes, all four men play themselves as younger men in those Vietnam flashbacks, which I think the timing is 1968 when those characters are supposed to be 18 or 19. Would you say that's right? Yeah, that sounds right to me. So there isn't a moment in those flashbacks where any one of those men pull off looking 18 or 19, oh, no. except except Chadwick Boseman, who we only see, well, for the most part, we only see in those flashbacks. And Spike tries to mask it only to the extent that the camera doesn't linger on anyone's face too long at all, right? Some of the guys are barely even visible in the chaos of these extended gunfights. And, and you lose track, I did anyway, of most everyone else in those sequences, except Delroy Lindo. It's almost surely a practical thing, budgetary, right? There were there were good reasons why they didn't cast four younger lookalikes or or have the budget to give it the Irishman treatment. But I also thought about it, of course. Here I am. I'm gonna I'm gonna give Spike the benefit of the doubt all the time. And I'm gonna try to intellectualize and rationalize why this should work. Wouldn't it be just like Spike Lee to say, you know what? Deal with it. The whole point of this movie is that this war is forever. It haunts America. It haunts the Vietnamese people as well. It haunts these men. They're all still scarred by what they experienced as 18 and 19 year olds. There you go. In a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, they have not changed. So so I can make the argument, Josh, I could do it for you. Right. Of course, there is this other struggle that you've touched on that Spike Lee has always been concerned with and that does, especially right now, seem tragically unending. It's what speaks to this film's timeliness and whether or not it matches the moment, the oppression of black people and that systemic injustice. As one character says in the film, even we were fighting for the rights of Vietnamese people that we didn't even have as Americans. So that that contradiction is always at play and at the fore in this film. So, again, intellectually, the choice to have these men almost playing ghosts of themselves in these flashbacks, it's undeniably the right one. And yet you can you can get that and still feel in the moment so utterly bewildered and distracted by it that you're never able to really connect. And and I wasn't. And I think that's the the thing, right? It, it's the thing with any film is your suspension of disbelief isn't so much a matter of how good the makeup is or the special effects of those things. It's how much you're buying in fundamentally to the story, how much you care about the narrative and the characters is going to determine how much you're willing to forgive in that moment. I think because everything we already said about how the other characters are marginalized, how Lindo's performance dominates everything to the point where I think the other characters do really get marginalized. I think that I was distracted by that scene, as well as some other scenes that I felt were maybe a little bit awkwardly handled, at least for me, it it all comes back to some of the fundamental things we're talking about. I think you're on the right track there. I, and I have no idea whether it was a budgetary concern and it was a necessity. And so more meaning was placed on it than might have initially been intended. But here's what it did for me. And you're right. It is jarring at first. Like I said, I think it wasn't until the second time where I... I realize, oh, this is really what's happening. Like, we're really yeah. going to have these older guys in the flashbacks. Yeah. And um, at that point, 
for one thing, there was a practical benefit to it for me. I've mentioned already how there are so many characters in this film. If I had had to have four new people to kind of match up to who the older guys were in those flashbacks, mm-hmm. I would have been totally lost. So so rather than getting new faces, we clearly know right away who's who in those flashbacks. That was helpful. But what it did for me, and this is where you were heading and, and kind of really nailed on, I think, was it underscored, yes, how these men are haunted. These exact men who look like this now are still living in that space mentally, psychologically. It did that. It also underscored for me how young Norm, the Chadwick Boseman character, was when he died. Because what we're seeing with those characters, the older characters, right next to this young man is the entire life he missed out on. The whole life that was taken from him. And for mm-hmm. me, that is, yes, it's kind of like an intellectual exercise that you're um, doing while you're watching that might take you out of the narrative a little bit, but it also made the the cost hit home to me much more strongly than it probably would have if they had cast uh, four other younger actors. I can definitely see that, and I think, if anything, I maybe wish Spike had even gone more extreme with it and gotten as Brechtian as possible, and maybe we just saw those guys as much as they were flashbacks, we actually saw them as they are now. No makeup, no dyeing the hair, no effects at all or attempts to mask that it's them, which is what the movie does. And actually just go for it. Have these men basically in the exact same fields that they were in, the exact same jungles that they were in, fighting some of the same fights as the men they are now. I think I might have appreciated that even more because I never want Spike Lee as a filmmaker to hold back or to not be the type of director who is showing his hand at work. That's what makes him so special. That self-awareness is one of the things I appreciate about his films and it's covered in our top five to an extent is that his cinema is a didactic form of cinema. Yes. It's as if he's saying all the time, I know and you know you're watching a movie and I'm in control here and I'm the teacher. More importantly, I am going Mm -hmm. to teach you and Sam, our producer who love this movie and we've been bickering a little bit about it over slack he wrote on letterboxd that he thinks spike lee is almost working in a new genre of his own making these are sam's words one that combines genre filmmaking documentary film criticism racial and political commentary and outrage and i wouldn't deny any of that except to say that genre has a name already i think and it's called spike lee it it is of his own making over four decades and if you wanted to argue that he's doing it even more pointedly and audaciously in this film than maybe he ever has and and mixing those different elements that's probably fair but i'd also point to 2018's black klansman just as his most recent film as one that does all those same things as well very well and for me more assuredly and i do think in this film he is at his best when his hand is most clearly visible the fluctuating aspect ratios I love that Mm -hmm. that's not only a way to delineate that we're going back in time, but there's one moment, if I'm remembering correctly, with Delroy Lindo's character, Paul, where in the midst of the present day, in the midst of chaos and some different psychological turmoil, we see the frame shrink down to a square as if it's taking him back to the mindset. It's taking him back to Vietnam psychologically, even before he's back there physically. And it's taking us with him. So I I do love that aspect of it. I love what we heard off the top of the show, the Hanoi Hannah recreation, which strikes me, Josh, is almost a sinister take on DJ Mr. Senior Love Daddy from (laughs) Do the Right Thing, right? And, and, And just one example, there are many in the film, but a character 
early in one of the flashbacks mentioning Milton Olive, who was born in Chicago, by the way, I discovered, smothering a bomb, sacrificing himself, getting the Medal of Honor. He's the first African-American to receive the Medal of Honor for the Vietnam War. And when they talk about him, Spike shows you his picture on screen yeah. and gives you his vitals. He is always educating you in that way. So I did like those aspects, though I see them differently than maybe some of the more blatant attempts to be meta in some of the movie homages that I don't think are as successful. And as I've said, I think just when it comes to the mechanics of the plot and the characters and what should be these really complicated, intimate bonds between these men, that's where I was always detached while I was into a lot of the other spikely touches that we've come to expect and love. I like Sam's description of, of the way Spike Lee's been working. I think it's absolutely correct. And But I agree with you that you can see the workbook all the way back in something like School Days, which was, you know, I think a second or third film. Um, it, this direct address cinema is what I've talked about it quite a bit. Mm-hmm. But you're right. As, as the teacher, that's always been an element. And he has, you know, found different specific tools through which to do that and change the approach a little bit depending on which style of movie he wants to make. I think Black Klansman has those elements, but maybe not quite as direct as in something like School Days or Do the Right Thing or here in The Five Bloods. You mentioned Hanoi Hannah. That is such a great touch. Um, sort of a, you know, a factual that there's Hannah O'Hanna was a historical figure here. She's played by Veronica No, um, this radio announcer who directed propaganda to the U.S. troops. But um, Lee dramatizes it, brings us into the studio with her. Mm-hmm. And what that sort of does is tighten the connection, the bond that that propaganda was trying to make with the soldiers who heard it. She's very yes. sort of loving the way she talks to the soldiers and and you get the sense of how discombobulating this had to be because what you have here is the enemy, the quote unquote enemy, right? Telling the only one telling you the truth. So it's not just that you're hearing the truth, but it's the only source for truth they had when they were in Vietnam was coming from, um, you know, the the very side that they were supposed to be fighting against. So yeah. So I love that touch. And you mentioned the homages. I do want to spend a little time on that. It sounds like it wasn't it wasn't an advantage for you to have um, Lee no. nodding to something like Treasure <laughs> of the Sierra Madre. I think I think that one was a little uh, maybe. Too forced for me, including yes. I will probably get to the 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 quote of dialogue, right? The most famous quote about stinking badges and treasure. You don't carry no stinking badges. I think is what they say here. <laughs> right. Obviously, a direct reference yeah. to Treasure of the Sierra Madre. I did like Apocalypse Now, though. I I do think the the way that uh, Paul becomes something of a Kurtz figure, especially as you said, once he gets off alone. And I love the shot. Speaking of Spike Lee shots, when they first arrive and are gathering at a club, and we. See start with this. It's almost like a painting of the famous Apocalypse Now sunset mm-hmm. and the yep. title of the movie. And the camera pulls back to reveal that a DJ is right in front of it playing club music. And the next yeah. big text we get is a neon Budweiser, Budweiser sign. Yeah. <laughs> it's an ad. And then we just sail through the rest of the club. That That's just like, so that's Lee at his best, right? It's this image camera movement politicizing things that we have these associations with in our heads that he's just going to spin, you know, and he's doing that with the MAGA hat too. He's spinning that thing. Uh, Mm. The way I initially read it as, as kind of a joke, I am sure there are maybe five or six other ways you could read that. I haven't 
processed it yet. And there may be other uses of that hat that Lee intended. Um, but these are all instances of him being the provocateur. Um, and, and I think he's doing it well once again here. That sequence where they're in the club and then we watch those guys, similar to one of the opening sequences or near the beginning of Black Klansman, where they're where they're dancing. But this is really about these men and that camera tracking them. It's it's kind of that classic Spike Lee shot we'll get to in our top five, where we all know the actors are standing still and the world is moving around them like they're on that conveyor belt, if you will. This is almost like that, except the camera is actually moving. Mm -hmm. The camera is actually following them as they dance. And there's some real joy in watching those guys. Maybe the only real joy we get in this entire film when they're together. But yeah, the the Flight of the Valkyries thing, I was already so tuned out in terms of being completely connected and bought into these characters that that rather than feeling like a clever nod, a clever homage, it, it felt kind of tired and it felt even more tired when I then heard them actually say the treasure of the Sierra Madre line. I know that most of us watching this film are thinking about that movie, something about the, the clumsiness of, of just the setup for it and everything. It didn't work for me here, but I do want to go back, Josh, to your, comment about Hanoi Hannah and explication of why that's so effective here. I think it's coming out of that, that we get what I think is the most powerful single line in the entire film. The one that resonates with me the most, the one that most resonates with me in terms of getting at what you said, this moment we're living in right now. It felt like he could have, he could have somehow gotten into a time machine and gone back and inserted it into the movie from right now. Not that Everything about this movie doesn't feel relevant to right now, but this line in particular, I think it's Bozeman's character, Storm and Norman, who is their leader, as they're all fired up by Hanoi Hannah and the assassination of Martin Luther King, and they are ready for action and they are out for blood Mm -hmm. and they are justifiably angry. He says these four words, we control our rage. We control our rage. And the key there is, That could be misinterpreted. It's not that he's saying we have to keep it under control Mm -hmm. or that we should keep it under control at all times. I think what's important is the hour. It's our rage. And we get to decide when we're going to unleash it and why not other people. That seemed to me the most relevant in terms of the type of anger and frustration that you are seeing, again, justifiably right now, but as everyone's trying to figure out the best way to to funnel mm-hmm. that anger, the mm-hmm. best way to harness that anger and rage. It's lines like that in a movie that in that moment is set back in 1968 that feels so timely and so prescient. Well, that's that connects the plot line with the gold as well, I think, because it's not just that they're going there for, for the cash, for the value, but it is Norm, the Chadwick Boseman character in a flashback, who, when they discover this gold, which was supposed to be payoff money from the U.S. military to the Vietnamese, um, that, that during a, a firefight just kind of got forgotten and lost in the jungle— Norm is the one who identifies it as, and and I was I almost wish he hadn't said it because I had just mm-hmm. gotten there about a minute before thinking, you know, this this is a reparations metaphor. What's happening here? Um, yeah. And and then he actually does. I think he or one of the others actually says reparations. Um, and, and I think that is interesting and connects with the rage because if they had lost control of that rage or given into it at that moment. I don't know who the object of it would have been. It might have been, you know, 
maybe innocent villagers nearby, um, maybe each other. I mean, things are really, really heightened in that moment. Um, and, and Norm calms them down and there's not rage when they find the gold and come up with this plan. Um, but it is, they're doing that as an act of justice uh, of saying, um, we've gotten screwed so long. This is, this belongs to us. Uh, And that, that was kind of a, a move of justice to, to make the plan to take that gold from the government take it from the U.S. government, right? right. Um, and so that's, con- that's again, connecting sort of the gold through line to, to the injustice through line that, that is going on here. So much to reckon with in Spike Lee's latest, as we have come to expect from one of our best filmmakers, De Five Bloods, is out on Netflix as of this weekend. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Well, Adam is fresh off his triumphant performance in our last edition of Massacre Theater. He's going to take the stage again with me for another edition when we come back. Plus, Speaking our- of big. <laughs> yes, go big or go home, Adam. Plus the Film Spotting Top 5, Spike Lee Shots. Stay with us. Denzel Washington and Spike Lee's Malcolm X. In just a bit, we're going to get to our favorite Spike Lee shots. But first, we do have some poll results. We asked you last week, what is your favorite Spike Lee movie? Sorry, we were presumptuous for all of you. What's your favorite that isn't Do the Right Thing? We gave you these options. Black Klansman, Malcolm X, 25th Hour, or other if you have a favorite that is not one of those three or four with Do the Right Thing and you've got several really good ones to choose from, you could write in your vote. Josh, how did it come out? Pretty clear winner here, Adam. Other did take last place, though, with 11%. Uh, Then we had 25th Hour with 20% of the vote. Black Klansman, 24% of the vote, but Malcolm X took it with 45%. And I think that's right. Have you looked at your Spike Lee ranking recently? I alluded to this last week, and I validated it. Do the right thing is number one for me, Malcolm X number two. And I don't see those changing as much as I love some of those films, definitely in the three to five or six range. Yeah. I haven't done the official ranking myself, but Malcolm X, I would put ahead of Black Klansman, which I would put ahead of 25th hour. So looks right Mm. to me. Yeah. See, this is what I love about Josh. He's so strict about the rules. He doesn't rank 
on Letterboxd. He doesn't give you his ranked list of a filmmaker until it's complete, until he's seen them all. And that's the way it should be. Of course. Meanwhile, I'm the I'm the dilettante <laughs> who says, you know what? I've seen I've seen 75 percent at least of Spike's movies. I'm going to do it. So you're rendering your your list doubly meaningless then, Adam. I mean, come on. That doesn't that doesn't mean I anything. think that's accurate. Um, I, I've still got I got two to go. So I'm almost there. It'll it'll get up there if I see, I believe, girl six and she hate me. That's what's left. Okay. And I know that I have not seen Girl 6. I am having one of those middle-aged man moments where I can't remember if I saw She Hate Me or not. I will have to look at my ranking. We heard from Darwin Manabat, who said, it's got to be Malcolm X. It's an epic undertaking to do a biopic like this, and the full breadth of Malcolm's life is felt in every scene, from his beginnings as Red to his assassination in the Audubon Ballroom, and even to the epilogue where scenes from the then-modern times come together to showcase Malcolm's everlasting effect on black Americans and everyone else. It's also Denzel's best performance to date, a true commitment to his craft. I know we're going to have some more thoughts here on Malcolm X, Josh, but I will say, I don't think I touched on this at all on the show over the past two months, but in the past few months, I watched the Death of Malcolm X series on Netflix. I don't remember how many episodes it is, maybe five or six, but it explores the assassination of Malcolm X and really actually sheds some new light and more or less tells you exactly who killed him hmm. it's not really a mystery anymore if you do watch that series so i recommend it we've got another vote for malcolm x here from chris hansen i don't think i appreciated malcolm x as much as i should have when i first saw it because at that time i didn't really understand who malcolm was i only understood him through the political lens of my youth now knowing more and understanding better i feel like it's a stirring portrait of the man absolutely jeremy kennis says i'm a lover of pretty much any spike lee joint but i wrote in jungle fever for this one it came out when i was a freshman in college and it really hit me i'm a half black, half-white man who was adopted when I was five days old into a wonderful, loving, all-white family, and there wasn't a lot of color where I grew up here in Colorado. I had already experienced the pitfalls of dating in high school and how some families react when their daughter brings a man of color home. Some really tough lessons, and Jungle Fever let me know that all this wasn't just in my imagination, and I wasn't the only one these things were happening to. I really like that movie too, Josh, and I think it was one of the earliest Spike Lee movies I saw. I don't have it in front of me. Maybe 91? That sounds about right. Jungle Fever, yeah. and that was, as we've touched on before, we've dated ourselves a little bit. 91, 92 was really the the birth of me becoming a cinephile, and I think that's when I saw Do the Right Thing for the first time, a couple of years after its release, and Jungle Fever might have then been the second Spike Lee joint I saw. Yep. I saw it in high school as well. Here's another note from Isaac Rosso Klakovich. He's in Chapel Hill. I voted for Clockers, which despite having less of Spike's trademark frenetic energy is, in my opinion, his best movie that isn't do the right thing. The reason I've always loved Spike Lee is that he's able to show people for their complicated and emotionally divided selves and refuses to paint people as plainly good or bad. Everyone in this film is a product of their situation. And for the leads of the film, especially Mackay Pfeiffer's strike, it's not a situation they brought upon themselves. In many ways, I think Strike is Spike's most fully formed and captivating character, someone who is constantly trying to do the right thing in a world where that thing is hard to find if it exists at all. Also a major player in Clockers, of course, Delroy Lindo, who we talked about in great detail during our conversation about The Five Bloods. Jake Scubas says it's Inside Man, one of the most well-constructed heist movies ever made, a hell of a good time, and thoroughly a Spike Lee movie. Amid all the tense action and timeline jumping, he manages to make the film a meditation on justice and the historical and moral bankruptcy of our institutions. Pun very much intended. You will hear more about 
Inside Man, and Malcolm X, and some of these other great titles in the top five coming up here in a bit. Here's Julio Oliveira from the Contrarians podcast. I want to see more love for Chirac around here. That's all. Well, That's all, Josh. Sorry, Julio. I mean, if putting it on my top 10 list for that year that it came out isn't enough for you, I don't know what else you want me to do. Yeah, I'm a big fan of that movie, too, but you're the guy to see about that. Thank you to everyone who voted in the poll and who left a comment. I think next week, as we are finally going to get to the Spielberg show, we've been promising for like, what, three years? <laughs> Seems like it. We, we will get to our other recent polls results that weigh in on the best Spielberg decade. So you'll have that to look forward to next week. Quick plug here for our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. Right now, they are doing part two of their House That Shirley Built pairing. This episode focuses on the new Shirley, which is directed by Josephine Decker and stars Elizabeth Moss as the writer Shirley Jackson. On an earlier episode, they paired that with 1963's The Haunting, which is based on the Jackson novel The Haunting of Hill House. I've heard that one, Adam, already. And somehow in a tangent, they went on to talk about, don't remember, don't I don't know if you remember this film at all, but The Haunting from 1999, which is I, no. sort of a remake, kind of based, it is based on uh, Jackson's novel as well. Well, as they're talking about it, they're, they mention Jan DeBont directed it, Catherine yeah. Zeta-Jones is in it. It's coming back to me now. Owen Wilson. And, and but I, I didn't see it. <laughs> I think I saw it. It's like one of these movies where um, the more they talked about how bad it was, uh, it seemed to bring more memories back to me. So anyway, that's where I am with the next picture show, just memories of The Haunting. I want to go back and see the original because I've never seen that one now. And of course, still good. catch up with Shirley. The next picture show, of course, hosted by Tasha Robinson, Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes are available every Tuesday. You can get them wherever you get your podcasts, and you can get more information at nextpictureshow.net. I realize in the rush to get ready for this show, Josh, I don't have the new patron names that I wanted to single out. We will have a bigger list next week, all the new family members. I think some people were enticed by our goal. We're getting closer to our goal of nice. 900 family members over on Patreon. That means you will get to participate in a virtual watch party with the two of us, as well as Sam Van Hogren. Let's face it, he's really the big draw here. And we don't know what the titles will be yet, but if we hit the goal, we will give family members three choices. We'll take your nominations as well. It's all about listener feedback, making you part of this family. So once we hit 900, that virtual watch party could happen, and we'll have to see what's in store for us. Josh, do you have any leanings? Is there a film that you've been kicking around that you think we may need to watch together, or are you not going to count your chickens before they hatch. No, I don't I don't want to, you know, hope for something that might not work out. What I can say is the two that I've done elsewhere have been for films that people know really well and they've seen countless times. So Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse and then 1977 Star Wars and that works really well because um, if we do get chatty in the commentary, yeah. you know, during the film. Um, People don't have to pay attention? They, well, they, they could choose to just ignore us. I mean, that's still an option. Yes. Um, but they won't feel like they're missing stuff in the film. So I guess I would say at the very least, it should be something people, pretty much everyone's seen at least once or twice in their life. That makes it fun. Okay. And what's great about that is you can so like- So The Haunting. Yeah. The Haunting from 99. Exactly. Yes. But you can dig into details that way too. You know, you don't have to cover like the plot and stuff. So yeah, I can't wait. Yeah. This is, this is going to be a blast. It's also not the only, you know, this is- no. This is a goal people get if we hit 900. But if you join the Film Spotting family on Patreon right now, there are already benefits sitting there for you. Those include ad-free episodes via dedicated RSS feed, early downloads of our regular episodes. 
We'll have live pre-sales and discounts for live events should we get a chance to do those again. There's also a merch discount on there. But the big bonus material you get are our monthly bonus episodes and we're running we'll have it ready but we we need to nail down adam what we're going to do for june's bonus episode right yeah we did put that poll over on our patreon account our family members have already voted in droves the poll may actually be done i mean as of this point we're going to leave it up for a few more days i would encourage anyone who has not voted already to vote in that poll make your voice heard We want to do the bonus content that most of you want to hear. And we are discovering that, and I suppose this is kind of a way to pat ourselves on the back, Josh, but we're discovering that it's not as if one of these options in any of our bonus content polls are just destroying the field. There are good choices here, or people seem torn between which one. They may not love all three of them, but maybe there's two they really can't decide between, and Like I said, I think that's ultimately a good thing. It means we're giving you some compelling options to pick from, but it doesn't mean that one has to win, even if it's not going to win with the majority, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's just the reality of picking between three options. We do want to give you that variety. So what we have offered this month, we're going away from our traditional model, which has been to dive into a single film or TV series in the case of devs. And we're going to maybe just riff a little bit and have a little bit more fun. So one of the three options that was suggested by a listener is our criterion closet picks. Imagine we get to go into that closet. You've seen many filmmakers do it. That content's available. If you haven't over at criterion's website, you get to walk into the closet with every single criterion disc that has ever been released and walk out with a handful which handful do you come out with? And now with the criterionchannel.com and all those options available for streaming, Josh, people are looking for some insight as to where they should start if they haven't already seen a ton of those films. So that's one of the options. The other option we're offering is Miyazaki Ranked. And family member Corby Waymiller, he gave us this candidate. Can we please get a Studio Ghibli Marathon slash top five in the future? So awesome to be able to discover all these films on HBO Max. Would love to listen to an episode where Adam and Josh talk on their favorite Ghibli films. So that's a wide tent, including all of the Ghibli films. Neither of us are completists there, Adam. But Miyazaki, um, I recently finished up, I think last year, our years-long project as a family of seeing all of Miyazaki's films. And the Kemp and our family, you guys, have you completed yours yet or are you right on the verge? We actually should have completed it last Sunday. We had our first break after 10 straight Sundays of watching Miyazaki. Family matters got in the way and we didn't get it watched, but we're going to finish it this Sunday night. The Wind Rises is our last one. We went out of order. We definitely did not go chronologically, but we are ending with his most recent film. So I think that's fitting. And you're right. We do have some blind spots between us on Ghibli. So I don't want to promise something that we can't deliver on, but I would really like to fill in those blind spots. So either way, Whether or not we ever get to a larger Ghibli kind of marathon or ranking all those films, we definitely wanted to include this one in the mix. And the third option that is right now in last place, Josh, we're calling Spielberg's Goats. Goat standing for greatest of all time scenes. And when you became a family member, you probably saw right on the main page that this is one of those recurring categories we envisioned us doing where we get some great ideas from listeners and from us and we'd break down one all-time great film sequence. We hadn't given you any of those choices yet, and we thought with the Spielberg look coming up and our 45th anniversary take on Jaws, why not 
break down a scene from Spielberg's filmography. That one, as I said, in last place at the moment. I could see us maybe going back to that one, including it in a future poll, or maybe we move on to a different filmmaker. Maybe, in fact, there's more Spike Lee work we could do with a GOAT segment. Right now, I know it's the one you didn't vote for, Josh, but the Criterion Closet is in first place. And if it makes you Miyazaki voters, like you, Josh, I presume, feel any better, I think there's a really good chance we're just going to steal that from the bonus content Patreon file and move it over to the show proper. That just needs to be a film spotting episode coming up at some point. I, I didn't realize I get a vote. So I, I've learned something new here. Great. You're a family member. That's true. I am. <laughs> I'll, I'll right, have Patreon. to exercise that right. You should. Patreon.com slash film spotting is where you can join the family. All right, let's move on to Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. A couple of weeks back, I'm going to say just Adam massacred this scene. <laughs> My brother back, please, if it's all the same. What's said is said. But I didn't mean it. Oh, you didn't. Please, where is he? You know very well where he is. Please bring him back, please. Sarah, go back to your room. Play with your toys and your costumes. Forget about the baby. That was David Bowie in his middle years with Jennifer Connelly in 1986's Labyrinth. It was written by Jim Henson and Dennis Lee, along with Monty Python's Terry Jones, directed by Henson. Massacre Theater, or was it truly the namesake that inspired it, Masterpiece Theater, Josh? (laughs) We did, along with that massacre, have our review of The Prestige, part of our Nolan Oeuvre review. So why that scene from Labyrinth? Well, Albert Malafront in Pasadena, California writes in, great job, Adam. The practice paid off. I've only seen this (laughs) film once and over a decade ago, but this was unmistakably a scene from Labyrinth between a young Jennifer Connelly and a very crotch-centric David (laughs) Bowie. The connections are pretty obvious. This film, like The Prestige, also deals with magic and features the White Duke himself. He was also discussed on the previous episode as one of the most memorable impressions in the trip series request for sam when we finally get our la meetup can you require adam and josh show up in labyrinth cosplay oh my that that is a goal i think when we get to ten thousand family members on <laughs> ten thousand yes i'm with you I think that's... i'm with you because i'm not into crotch centric <laughs> costuming really you know a labyrinth curiously enough i think it was yeah, I think it was like rated PG, but there was a special in that little box, MPA warning, that said crotch-centric, just so just so the kids knew. <laughs> Here's course. a note from Kathy Wouter from the Adirondack Mountains of upstate New York, a staple when my kids were growing up. Even now, my 23-year-old will sometimes tell me to chilly down with the fire gang, his favorite song on the soundtrack, questionable I know. I have to ask, though, if Adam got into Reign of Fire by shaving his head, did he prep for the David Bowie voice by donning a pair of those magic pants? <laughs> for a kid's movie, they were, um, the elephant in the room. If Adam did wear a pair, that would explain the gasping for breath quality of his voice in that scene. <laughs> Sarah, go back to your room. Play with your toys and your costumes. Forget about the baby. So we have a lot of different takes on my performance as David Bowie a couple weeks ago. And I thought I would just go through this almost like the little blurbs you read by 
movie critics who are far more esteemed than us, Josh, yes. on various <laughs> movie posters. And we'll see that whether it was Masterpiece or Massacre really is in the ear of the beholder. <laughs> Devin Wombald, bravo. Just bravo. I did also get a lot of wow, just wow, and no, just no. <laughs> Ross Woolman, pretty haunting, David Bowie. Hmm. Malcolm Cook, I applaud your commitment to the Bowie role in Labyrinth, but please, for the love of God, don't ever do it again. Yes. It made me rather worried about your health, as I could only assume you were having some sort of seizure during the performance. Not pleasant. Scott Gluck says, I didn't realize that Bella Lugosi was in Labyrinth. <laughs> All hail Adam, the vibrato Kempinar. There's Alfredo Gutierrez. Thank you, Adam, for your impression of a shivering ghost. And Josh for his impression of Oliver Twist. Mm. Benji Kosa. It sounded more like Dobby dying in Harry Potter's <laughs> arms in whichever Potter movie that was. And I got to say, of everyone who wrote in, Benji's little pithy comment there, that was the one that cut me deepest. Yes. That was. <laughs> Kevin H. At first, I thought Adam was going for some sort of Igor Dr. Frankenstein voice, but by the end, I think he actually got the tremulousness of Bowie down pretty well. Thank mm. you, Kevin. But Jeff in Seattle says, Scooby-Doo ghost haunting an abandoned amusement park? That's <laughs> good, that's how we describe good guess. my Bowie impression. But we're going to close. We're going to close with Kim, very racy Zucker. She's in Hollywood. She says, Adam to Josh, well, I broke you. Oh, honey. You broke all of us. <laughs> nice, Kim. You know, I I was impressed, but now that I know your pants Thank were you. doing the acting, I mean, <laughs> totally, kind of doesn't mean as much yeah. to me. Yeah, I'm one of those. I'm one of those outside in guys. <laughs> With that, Josh, reach into the pretty brimming film spotting hat. So I'm going to take that as a sign that my performance was amazing, and pick out this week's winner. The winner is Mike Bolin. He's from Philly. Congratulations, Mike. Email feedback at filmspotting.net, and we will set you up with your very own film spotting t-shirt it's a scene man memorize it. <laughs> what look man undercover cops gotta be marlon brando right to do this job you gotta be a great actor you gotta be naturalistic you gotta be naturalistic as hell we move on to this week's edition of massacre theater we are going to make it more family friendly we'll take out some of the effusive swearing here josh and we're also going to change the names are we leaving in the crotches definitely okay i think that that's a must <laughs> okay now Good. it's obligatory for every massacre theater but we're going to change the names so as not to make it too easy but in the process of changing the names we probably did just that so if you're a little bit lost I guess what I'm saying is you might find some clues there in our name choices as we have done really throughout the history of massacre theater I don't think we need to say anything else. The connection, if you know it, it'll be pretty clear to this episode. Josh, I'm going to start it off. You definitely have the heavy lifting this time. And I'm sure, unlike me with Bowie, you haven't practiced a bit. Um, I have not practiced this. Have watched the scene. There's my practice. Okay. okay. Here we go. I'm going to start it off. You give me the action. And action. Hey, Travis, let me borrow your spares, huh? Your extra pair? No, Sal. No? What do you mean, no? Just what I said. No. No means no. Some effing friend. You're some effing friend. You know that? You gotta learn, Sal. Every time you come up here, you got your head up your ass. Every time he comes up, he's got no knife, no jacket, he's got no pants, he's got no boots. All he's got is that stupid gun he carries around like he's John Wayne. That ain't gonna help you. You're an effing bastard. You know that? Huh? Sal, see this? This is this. This ain't something else. This is this. From now on, you're on your own. And, and scene. scene. Now, see, here's the problem. <laughs> the problem is that 
Josh, I can see you, yeah. but listeners can't. <laughs> so I know that you're doing your best take on this guy, yeah. but you actually do have to translate it to the voice. So it was all physical is what you're telling me. It was all and physical. And not vocal. And you know what? I'm just going to say that our listeners are missing out because <laughs> it was pretty good. Well, it was pretty good. Hey, video renditions of Massacre Theater, that should be another yeah. goal on Patreon. <laughs> Yeah, if we hit a thousand, there you that's go. what you'll get. <laughs> if you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, June 29th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. But I'm here tonight to tell you that it is time for you to stop running away from being black. It is time for you to stop running away from being black. You're college students, right? Right on. You should think. It is time for you to understand that you, as the growing intellectuals of this country, that you must define beauty for black people. Now that's black power. Corey Hawkins there as Kwame Ture in a great scene. From Spike Lee's Black Klansman, a movie we reviewed very favorably back in 2018. In fact, Black Klansman made both of our top 10 lists that year. It made my top 20 of the decade. This week with The Five Bloods Out, we're revisiting the top five that we paired with that review. Our top five Spike Lee shots. We had done Spike Lee scenes previously on the show with a different host. Josh Maddie was here for that. I think that was 2008. So by 2018, we were due for sure, to revisit Spike Lee. And as you said earlier, we got even more granular this time. We just focused on our favorite shots. And we wanted to start with some feedback that we got to that original show. So this is stuff that came in after that episode aired in August 2018 that we never got a chance to get into during a follow-up episode. Let's start with Mike from Omaha. I've only seen a handful of Spike Lee films, so I don't have the widest selection of scenes to choose from. But an obvious one that springs to mind is Edward Norton's profanity-laced monologue in 25th Hour. It's an uncomfortable but thought-provoking tirade because you may find yourself at odds with another community you weren't even aware felt antagonistic about you. It's interesting because you get a picture of race relations that is more complex than black and white. If there's one thing most of us can agree on regarding Spike Lee's didacticism and his films, no issue is ever black and white, a matter of right and wrong. Lee depicts a world in shades of gray, a world much like the one we live in. He tries to nudge us in the enlightened direction, but he's not going to shove us. He expects a little bit of work to be done on our end. And that's the beauty of his art. Dylan Dam says, I took in Black Klansman the night before your review posted, and it quickly became my favorite movie of the year. Among the many scenes and moments that stood out to me, one shot that you didn't mention during your discussion may have been one of the most impactful for me. It follows the scene where Adam Driver's flip is with the other clan members out in the woods at a gun range. That alone did not strike me as anything unusual. I grew up on a farm outside a tiny Nebraska town and have many friends who enjoy shooting guns recreationally. The part that stood out was the scene immediately following that when we see John David Washington's Ron Stallworth come up on the range once the members have left. As he approaches, he bends to pick up a shotgun shell and then stands to face what we can assume to be that we have not yet seen the targets they were all shooting at. What struck me about this scene was the inevitability of what we were about to see. The look on Ron's face, a look equal parts anger and sadness, one that made it apparent that these were not the usual bullseye-shaped targets you might see elsewhere. As the camera spun around behind Ron and the target finally came into view, we saw what we knew was there but hoped would be something else. Now, I can't say with certainty whether this is one of Lee's best shots. Truth be told, I have not seen enough of his films to make such an assertion. But nevertheless, it impacted me tremendously. Lee knew that people would know what Ron was looking at and the way he lingered on his face 
before revealing the targets was a masterstroke. Thanks, Dylan. Here's a note from Jesse in Durham, North Carolina. While my favorite Spike Lee film is Do the Right Thing, and that film is solidly in my top 10 of all time, when you said favorite Spike Lee shot, my mind immediately went to Malcolm X and the new scene when Malcolm and Shorty, played by Spike Lee himself, crossed the city street in their new suits. I remember the first time I saw it, it felt like a perfect picture of those two characters, defiant in the face of a brutal society and full of joy and lust for life. Yeah, so good, Jesse. That Sway is one of my honorable mentions. Josh Ashenmiller in L.A. closes us out. I've always been a champion of the off-maligned school days, and I love the way that film ends, with an all-cast curtain call. Then Lawrence Fishburne and Giancarlo Esposito stare right at the audience and tell us to wake up. Yep, it figures. Spike Lee was woke a long time ago. Certainly one of the signature calls of Spike Lee's career captured there early on. Yeah, I agree with that one. In our review of Black Klansman, we did spend some time talking about that Kwame Ture scene you heard, specifically the way the scene is a great example of what Lee himself calls a spikeism. We know that because we read the New York Times article, How Spike Lee Created Three Signature Visual Shots by Mikado Murphy, a writer and editor for the movie section of the New York Times, also a friend of the show. And a spikeism is, as Spike himself says, a heightened visual flourish that makes you take notice while moving the narrative forward. And they get into a couple other examples as well. That's the faces in the crowd scene, the floating down the street, the double dolly shot that we will probably cover in some detail during in this list, his signature shot, his most signature shot, I think you could argue. And then a scene from Crooklyn and a use of technique that is not going to make either of our lists where he actually squeezes the frame. He's trying to heighten the sense of this character, Troy, from Brooklyn being a fish out of water, leaving bed going to this more affluent place in Virginia to stay with relatives and he shot the scenes with anamorphic lenses and then ran them in a normal aspect ratio and it confused the hell out of most people who saw it in the theaters at the time including me who saw it on DVD back in film school actually when I saw Crooklyn but it makes the shots look as the article says elongated and odd people actually complain so much that a lot of theaters had to put a note up I thought something was going wrong with my TV when I watched it for (laughs) the first time in prep for this list but it absolutely makes sense for what's going on in that sequence. So let's dive into some of these spikeisms. I suppose we could have called this list instead of top five Spike Lee shots, our top five spikeisms. Hard to narrow it down to just five from such a rich body of work. How did you go about this task? It was incredibly hard. I had to use that construct that we fall back on from time to time where we say if aliens came to earth and wanted to basically know what a spike Lee movie looked like, what images would I show Hmm. them? So I came away with a collage, really, that is by no means comprehensive. We couldn't even get close to it, considering all the great stuff he's done. But I'm I'm pretty happy with it. And I'm going to start at number five with one from very early in his career. It is She's Gotta Have It. And the shot is of Mars Blackman against the Brooklyn Bridge. I knew I wanted a shot that had Lee himself in it. It's not just that he has appeared in many of his films, not quite as much as of late, but it's more that his actual presence is representative of what I call his direct address cinema. In every one of Lee's films, you can feel him talking directly at you. That's why some people describe them as preachy. And that literally happens when he is there on the screen. So she's got to have it from 1986. It features probably the most famous character he played, Myers Blackman, who is one of the three boyfriends 
of the title character, Nola Darling. She's played by Tracy Camilla Johns. We meet Mars in a first-person address to the camera where he's given a not very politically correct account of his attraction to Nola. What about Nola Darling? What do you want to know? I thought she was a freak. You know, freaky dicky. You asked why I like her saying to see her? It looked like a I'm not crazy. The sex was death. Nola had the goods and she knew what to do. Look, all men want freaks. We just don't want them for a wife. So the shot is tight on Mars' face. So that his giant black framed glasses, they're, they're even more prominent. And he's leaning into the frame towards the camera to emphasize the character's insistence and the moment's insistence. Lee's working here with cinematographer Ernest R. Dickerson. They're using black and white. And they leave enough room in the left of the frame for the Brooklyn Bridge to make an appearance there. And I think this is key because throughout She's Gotta Have It, Lee frames his characters around Brooklyn architecture. And he's establishing early on that this is a neighborhood that's going to play an integral part in so many of his films. I heard from listener Ryan Morgan on Twitter. He's at Mr. Underscore Rymo, and he suggested Mars for a slightly different reason than this. The image of Mars in She's Gotta Have It, he said, for the pioneering way that Lee used the character to fund and promote both himself and his films through the use of the burgeoning hip-hop culture of the time. It was a genius way to get his films made and seen by wide audiences. So, of course, Ryan's referring to Mars' second career as a Nike spokesman alongside Michael Jordan. That's why I think he's maybe even more famous than Mookie, who Lee played in Do the Right Thing. So, for me, Lee's at the forefront. Of everything he makes, not a director who mm-hmm. hides in the background in any way. So I did want a shot with him on camera, went with She's Gotta Have It. Yeah, I love your approach. The aliens question is always a good one, though I think I not only thought about that practical function or impractical function as the case may be, but also shots that for me, some of the pleasure of watching his films. These are five films, certainly the top four, that I will always go back to as my Spike Lee favorites. And I thought about the different types of shots that I think should be eligible for a list like this. The floating dolly shots, the use of direct address to the camera, the dolly shots where he's doing something even more crazy and heightened than that floating one, and then shots that aren't about the camera movement and they're just about the imagery. They're just about the beauty of the shot itself. But that notion of purpose was always forefront in my mind. The form excites you, but okay, to what end is it employed? How does it inform the characters, the scenario? How does it affect our viewing experience and our understanding of what we're seeing beyond the coolness factor? And I'm going to start at number five with a film that I do think is a second tier Spike Lee movie, though I've only seen it once and I'd love to revisit it. It's Mo Better Blues starring Denzel Washington, and it's the trumpet practice scene. This is a film from 1990. Denzel stars as a jazz trumpeter named Bleak Gilliam. And this practice scene, this shot in particular, I chose because it's a variation on the double dolly floating shot. And I keep saying double dolly, Mikado in his conversation with Spike Lee explains what that is. It's just like it sounds instead of the standard shot where you've got an actor in motion or standing still and the camera is moving towards them or past them or whatever the case may be. They're both 
on dollies. And that's what gives you that effect of them almost standing still, but also in motion as everything changes around them. We get a variation on it here that I'll get into, but the scene also has the element of direct address that we see so often in Spike's work where characters are directly talking to the viewer, sometimes in almost a documentary fashion, sometimes not. Sometimes within a pure narrative, they are looking directly at the audience or talking directly to the audience. And this is a scene that takes place early in the film. Bleak is practicing at his place. We see him initially carefully preparing his trumpet. And this is a movie, Josh, Mo Better Blues, that opens with a scene set in Brooklyn in 1969 when Bleak, the trumpet player, is a young boy and he's practicing and a group of his friends come up and they ask him to come out and play baseball. And his mother says that, no, he's going to finish his trumpet lesson. And the dad is worried that He's not going to be the right type of boy, let's put it that way, and he should be out there playing ball with his buddies. The mom keeps him focused on his trumpet playing. He continues to play, and his friends go away. This scene begins with a shot of a scoreboard in his apartment. It's the Yankees and the Brooklyn Dodgers, and he's wearing a baseball jersey in the shot to start. It comes off during the dolly shot, and he's preparing his trumpet just like a batter a glove. He's oiling it up and... It's obviously, or it seems to me pretty obvious, that Spike is trying to connect those two worlds. Now, as this more famous trumpet player, he gets to combine both those interests on his own terms. And we get a hard cut then to a close-up of Bleak holding his trumpet on his left side, and he's using his right hand just like he would be playing the trumpet. But it's just all air moves, basically, with his fingers. There's some music playing in the background, and he's essentially soloing over the top of it with his fingers and his voice, mimicking the sounds that his horn would make. The camera, unlike those floating dolly shots that move in a lateral fashion or move in a linear fashion, this one is actually circling around him in his apartment the whole time. The shot ends with one of his girlfriends ringing his door and he admonishes her for breaking up what she knows is his practice time. And I love this shot, Josh, because not only does it give us some of those elements that we see throughout his work, but it reinforces this notion that this is his time. It's his space completely. The apartment swirling behind him, it could be the moon. It could be anywhere in the universe. It doesn't matter. All that matters is the music, the notes, the choices he's making, and that all requires total obeisance. It's all about the craft, and everything changes in the room while he is completely constant. He's singularly focused, and the whole movie is largely about how all those other intrusions, everything outside that circle, makes everything so messy. Friends, managers, rivals, women, and how does an artist like Bleak reconcile that? So maybe an underappreciated Spike Lee film, underappreciated a little bit by me, but I've always loved that shot, another one that comes to us via director of photography, Ernest Dickerson. Yeah, creating that sense of private space is key there, and then putting us in it, right? Because yeah. it's it's almost like you're on a merry-go-round. Yep. The camera is spinning at the center of the merry-go-round, looking at him on the outer edge. And so we're with him as it moves around the room. And you're right, it just creates this unbreakable arena yeah. that we get to witness yeah. and be a part of. And actually, to that point, we almost have an intimate moment with him. Yeah. We get inside an intimacy with him that the other characters in his life don't really get to share. All right. My number four comes from a film that's maybe considered by many lower tier Spike Lee. It's not 
one of my favorites, but I was able to catch up with it for this list, and it does have an exquisite visual moment. The movie is Red Hook Summer, and the shot is of the eyes of the good Bishop Enoch. This is Lee's 2012 religious drama. It's about a 13-year-old boy from Atlanta spending the summer with his pastor grandfather in Brooklyn, Bishop Enoch, played by Clark Peters. So yeah, this isn't entirely successful. There's some pretty shaky performances from the young cast, but the moment I'm thinking of comes about two-thirds of the way through. It's just after there's been a dramatic reveal, and I'm not going to get into that here in case there are listeners who haven't seen Red Hook Summer yet and want to check it out. Basically, the revelation results in this moment of crisis during a church service. Now, in response, Enoch, who's at the front of the church in his purple robe, he raises his face and hands to the ceiling and exhorts, beware of false prophets. Uh, We don't know at this point whether he's talking about himself or someone else. The shot begins above Enoch, looking down at him in close-up, and it does move. It pulls away slowly, but it's really that close-up where we notice that the reflection of the ceiling light panels are forming a cross in each one of his eyes. And this is really startling. It gives a demonic flair to religious iconography. And that does relate to some of the movie's concerns. Going back to your question of, okay, this is really cool, but what is it there for? Mm-hmm. Well, this is there to bring those two things together in an unsettling way. What's also really ingenious about this is the way Lee sets it up. I think this is the third church service scene we've gotten in the movie, but this one begins. The first thing we see is the camera looking up at that ceiling, and we notice for the first time that those flat light panels do indeed happen to form the shape of a cross. So we have that image in the back of our minds well before it appears in Enoch's eyes, which is maybe five, six minutes later. I also like this one because Lee calls back to it in Black Klansman, right? We get the burning crosses reflected in the eyes of the hooded Klan members mm-hmm. at one point. So Red Hook Summer, yeah, not one of my favorite Spike Lee films, but that visual flourish was striking enough to make my list. Yeah, one I definitely need to catch up with. And I should point out that you can find all of these picks over at filmspotting.net. We always list our top five choices there. Just go to filmspotting.net and click on list. You can't miss it. And whenever possible, we will also link those choices to scenes from the movie. In this case, we will link to the direct scenes that we are referencing. Unfortunately, we can only do that as the clips allow, as if this wasn't hard enough to go through all of his work and land on just five shots. But a lot of the moments that I think we were both looking for, you really had to go digging in the movies themselves. They're just not there on YouTube, not of decent quality. But the ones that we do have, for sure, we will link to them. And the other ones, maybe we can include the images. Yeah. For this one, I actually had to take a screenshot of the film because I was surprised. I thought there'd be more Spike Lee stuff out there in terms of the imagery. Yeah. My number four comes from a movie that I think was well-received at the time, but I feel like has only grown in estimation over the years. It's from 25th Hour, and it's the scene overlooking Ground Zero. One of the reasons I picked it is because of that D word again, didactic, right? You have two characters who the entire time they're conversing are standing right in front of a window overlooking the ruins of the two towers. It's Barry Pepper and Philip Seymour Hoffman, two friends of the main character, Monty Brogan, played by Ed Norton. He has one night left before he's going off to prison on drug charges, and he's going to spend it as wildly and with as much fun 
ostensibly as he can. His two friends want to show him a good time. His two buddies from, I believe, their childhood, they couldn't be more different as a trio of friends. And those two in particular, Barry Pepper playing the stock trader and Philip Seymour Hoffman, a teacher at kind of a snooty private school, they get together at Pepper's apartment and talk about the night and how they're going to approach it. I tried Josh, to lay out some bullet points explaining why I appreciated this scene, why I felt like it belonged on this list. And then I discovered that our good friend and a great critic, Scott Tobias, wrote about this scene and wrote about this movie very astutely back at The Dissolve in February 2015. 25th Hour was their movie of the week. And he wrote an article called The Ruins and Reckoning of 25th Hour. I really cannot say it better. Here's Scott on this particular scene and how it fits in within the construct of this film. No one's story exists outside the context of where they live. And to some degree, 25th Hour associates the wreckage of Ground Zero with the devastation its protagonist's choices have wrought in his own life. A more radical reading of 25th Hour would hold 9-11 as another consequence of bad choices, but at a minimum, Lee is doing the work of the documentarian he's always been. As with Paul Thomas Anderson in the San Fernando Valley or Steven Spielberg in suburbia, there's a history of New York built into Lee's films, even if they aren't explicitly about their locale. To ignore 9-11 so soon after it happened would be a dereliction of duty for Lee, because there's no way to account for life in the city without it. The way it happens to dovetail so beautifully with David Benioff's story makes the film that much more evocative and powerful. As it happens, 9-11 references take up a much smaller portion of 25th Hour than it might seem. The bulk of it is relegated to the mournful opening credit sequence, which assembles different views of the tribute and light art installation set to Terrence Blanchard's score, before pulling back to reveal the ghostly spotlights where the Twin Towers once stood. Later, there's a shot of the wanted dead or alive tabloid cover with Osama bin Laden scotch taped to a broker's door, and a scene where two old friends peer down at ground zero from a high-rise apartment and argue over conflicting news reports of polluted air. Bin Laden and Al-Qaeda are also folded into a bilious monologue that comprehensively disses every racial and class stereotype in the city, a callback to a famous montage in Lee's Do the Right Thing. The aftermath of 9-11 is a fleeting incidental concern to the day in the life of 25th hour, but the tenor of life has shifted unmistakably, which is true of New York and of the country. Even unseen, it's a presence. And he lets that presence do all of that work in the scene. It's a five-minute take where the camera never moves. Spike Lee recognizes the power of the visual, the power we as viewers will apply to that background, everything that we will read into it and glean from it, and Scott really couldn't articulate it better, the DP of 25th Hour, Rodrigo Prieto, who shot Brokeback Mountain, Amores Peros, The Wolf of Wall Street, among other very good films. So I had two lists as I was going into preparation for making these lists. One was the Spike Lee films I've not seen yet. Yeah. And those were the priority. And here were the ones that I wanted to revisit. Mm. And 25th Hour was at the top of that because I did like it very much what you described. Liked it quite a bit when it came out. Um, But I know that people have talked about it in even grander terms Mm -hmm. in the years since. And so I want to see, you know, what what I might have missed that first time. And I think it was some of that 9-11 stuff is trying to reconcile that with the story at hand and maybe Mm -hmm. missing some of these other connections that Lee's making. So at some point I will get back to 25th hour. All right, my number three pick, Scott Reference Do the Right Thing there in his piece, and man, were there so many to pick from. From that film, Spike Lee's masterpiece, on my list of the top 10 films of all time, maybe I'll save some of the ones I considered for our honorable mentions. What I went with was perhaps the film's toughest shot, and that is of Radio Rahim falling to the ground after being murdered. So 
We started our Black Klansman review talking about how throughout Spike Lee's career, he's been ahead, if not driving the cultural conversation on race. And I think this shot is the best example of that. This comes after the confrontation between Danny Aiello Sal and Bill Nunn's radio Rahim in the pizzeria. That spills out into the streets. Police are called. Radio Rahim is put in a chokehold by one of the cops and then held in it long after he's been subdued and killed. Lee finishes this sequence with the camera on the ground looking up and Radio Rahim's body is dropped just like a bag of garbage so that his face falls just in front of the lens. This panicked police officer you could see standing over him and then Rahim's hand, which is wearing the love brass knuckles that we saw earlier in the film falls forward toward the lens as well, kind of right next to his face. Every time I watch this, it's that composition that's compelling, but I'm also always suddenly shocked by that lifelessness, just the pure lifelessness that image captures. The fact that such a big life force, this guy has so suddenly and pointlessly Mm -hmm. been snuffed out. So obviously, you know, Police misconduct against African-Americans was being called out before Do the Right Thing. But Lee, you know, he put it on the big screen in a movie that broke through to mainstream America and and really maddeningly foreshadowed the many, many cases we've seen since, especially in recent years. Uh, Do the Right Thing is a movie that has a lot of joy in it. There's a lot of loveliness. I think people forget that it ends on what is a really remarkable note of hope and reconciliation considering the context of Mm -hmm. all of the other films in Lee's career. But despite all that, I do have to go with this moment of awfulness for this list. Yeah, no, that's a great choice. My number three Spike Lee shot comes from Malcolm X, and it's the Moonlight Clan ride. I want to thank Drew R. He's at Twin Cinema on Twitter for reminding me of this shot, and he called it Malcolm X's Dark Homage to E.T. And I don't know how honest or how genuine Drew is being there with that suggestion. I would love for someone to show me that I'm off base, but I'd pay good money to see or hear Spike Lee's response to someone suggesting that he was in any way, shape, or form paying homage to E.T. with this shot. I'll get into it more, but the visual is of a very large full moon and these five Klansmen on horses riding directly into it. And it does in some way kind of mimic the famous shot from E.T. of the bicycles riding in front of the moon. This one seemed so appropriate for this list too, Josh, considering that it was inspired by Black Klansmen, not just because of the obvious, the Klan connection. This is a scene early in the movie where we've gone from a freeze frame on red at the time, the young or younger Malcolm X, to a flashback of him in Nebraska, except it's actually before he was even born. His mother's pregnant with him, and the Klan comes out to their house to harass his father, who's a preacher and who's away. We hear the narration say they broke all the windows with their rifle butts before riding off into the night. They rode off into the moonlight just as suddenly as they'd come. So we have the clan elements, but you've also got, Josh, this incongruity, this conflict. I think you called it the intellectual dissonance, right, that mm-hmm. is so prevalent in Black Klansmen and in other Spike Lee films. Here it is captured just in this single shot of these Klansmen riding in to the moonlight because There is that conflict between what we're seeing and how we see it. These five men on horses, they're wearing hoods and robes. They've just terrorized a pregnant woman and her young children. And as they do ride off into the moonlight, they look glorious. He's taken this awful moment and he's almost romanticized it, but romanticized it in the way someone who has no actual recollection of the scene might recall it. 
especially if you're reflecting back on your childhood and perhaps idealizing your childhood, even as rough as these circumstances were. The way he shoots the family in the home reflects this romantic inclination too a little bit. The windows glow with such a striking yellow hue. I think it's probably gas lanterns or something, but it's so warm and inviting inside. And on the outside, it actually almost burns a little too brightly. You know what it reminded me of? Speaking of Spielberg, the great scene from Close Encounters of the Third Kind, when Barry is taken. Again, a house terrorized, similar colors, the orange and the yellow, and there it's a UFO riding off into the moonlight. So you never know. Maybe actually Spike Lee is paying some tribute to Steven Spielberg there. But there is another reason I think it's important for this list. It's a great example of something we touched on again during Black Klansman that's quite common in his films, which is it suggests an element of magical realism. The moon is so big and bright and full and low to the ground. It engulfs the Klansmen. It almost turns them into like a snow globe. I don't know what a globe would be if it doesn't have any snow, but that's almost what it seems like. And again, there are lots of examples of that kind of magical realism being employed in his films where characters are experiencing fantasy moments or unrealistic moments. But it's not about the plot or the story or action that's unrealistic It's all in the form. The camera is actually bringing out that element of magic. And it's so beautiful. You just look at it admiringly, and then you remind yourself you're watching The Klan. It's a shot that D.W. Griffith might have used in Birth of a Nation to glorify The Klan if he had had the means. Ernest Dickerson, once again, the great cinematographer here. Yeah, I mean, it's very likely that Birth of a Nation is is being called back upon there. The other film that I think of is Night of the Hunter mm. and some of the silhouettes of Robert Mitchum totally. on horseback. Now, there's not a moon there, but, but there is light coming yeah. from behind. And the connection I make there is, you know, Mitchum's a false preacher, yep. right? And we didn't even touch on the religious elements of Black Klansmen, mm-hmm. where all of that hate speech, especially at the initiation ceremony, is interwoven with religious speech mm-hmm. and tradition. And there's maybe something there about, you know, the, the their false preachers up there mm-hmm. against the moon. It's, a, it's an amazing shot. Okay, so we are at number two, and I've talked already about how I call Lee's work direct address cinema. I think you could also call it wake-up cinema. His wake-up films are the ones that yell at us, rattle us, provoke us into thinking about race, gender, politics in new ways. I think probably most of them operate in this register. Not all of them, but most of them. So that does bring me to my number two pick, which is The Shot of Dap, played by Lawrence Fishburne literally screaming wake up in the middle of campus in school days. Wake up! Wake up! Dapp is the politically conscious student at Mission College. This is a fictional, historically black institution. Throughout the film, he's he's kind of been at odds, both with his fellow students for their apathy in general, but also with this clownish, cruel fraternity brother played by Giancarlo Esposito. This moment takes place near the end of the film, and it is an extended sequence. It starts with Dap running across the quad from far away as the camera swoops down to meet him. And then it intercuts to people waking up in bed as he starts screaming. But I do want to pick one shot from this sequence. And that is, going back to direct address, Dap looking at us as he screams. And here, Ernest Dickerson again, casting him in this umber morning glow. And then suddenly, both he and the camera rise in the air. It's it's not a dolly. It must be a crane involved, I would think. And what this does is 
gives his message this sudden metaphysical, there's that word again, Mm -hmm. power to it. Yes, this sounds awfully didactic, and it is, but it's worth noting that School Days isn't just a mouthpiece for Dap. A lot of times the movie is skeptical of some of his choices as well and critical of them. So this goes back to that idea I was talking about where Lee can be preachy, but he's preaching a lot of things at once Mm -hmm. sometimes, throwing it all at you. I think that's why I don't get too caught up in the specific politics of his films and and trying to nail down exactly what is he saying and how do I feel about that. I think this is especially helpful with something like Chirac, maybe why I liked it more than most. And interestingly, Chirac has a callback to the wake up moment. Samuel Jackson has a wake up shot in Chirac. So the bottom line here, I think these films, they're calls to consciousness, right? They're calls to wake up first, work out the politics later. And this scene from School Days is a Mm. great example of that. Yeah. Another one of my big blind spots. I had two that I wanted to reconcile here. She's got to have it in School Days. And I was only able to make time for She's Got to Have It. So you made me feel even worse about that, Josh. Thank you. Great choice. My number two comes from the movie that might actually be my third favorite Spike Lee film, Inside Man. And I'm calling it Detective Frazier's Fury. We're going back to Denzel Washington here. I felt like I did had to have one straight up double dolly shot on this list. And it definitely doesn't apply to all of the shots throughout his body of work. But watching Black Klansman and thinking about this list, you recognize that there is often a clash because the shots are cool. On the surface, they make the characters look cool. But we're actually seeing them it seems to me, often at their most vulnerable, the moment when their lives are most disrupted psychologically or emotionally. A lot of times there's just no real volatility. There's almost serenity to the shot that we're seeing as the characters are moving on that dolly. But the dolly is essentially taking away their agency. They're on a path to something they can't escape. Black Klansman does have this moment where it's finally employed. Good is seemingly prevailed in the movie. And all of a sudden, the characters are being ushered into a really unsettling revelation. Well, Inside Man features the most volatility, the biggest clash. Clive Owen plays Dalton Russell, the guy who's speaking to us in direct address at the beginning of the film. And at various points, he decides here to prove that he means business. And he, quote unquote, kills a hostage with Detective Frazier and the NYPD watching. Up until this point, Frazier has been operating under some illusion of control. He thinks he can navigate the scenario, that he probably is smarter than this guy on the inside, and that everything is going to work out okay, as stymied as he may be. He's mystified by the circumstances and the motives, but I do think he's sure he can handle Dalton. And then this action, this one action, completely shatters that illusion. And when it's shattered, when we cut to that double dolly shot, now there is this intensity and this volatility. Frazier is standing still, Denzel Washington, I should say, is standing still, but we know he's running because of the frenetic style. The movement is so rapid. The camera is actually shaking side to side. The background is chaos. Cops are running and mobilizing. Washington's face stays still. His lips are pursed, but you can just tell that anger is boiling. It's all heightened by everything that's going on around him with the shot. The music, it's the Terrence Blanchard score. It pounds as the shot begins, and then it rises, and it becomes more percussive and builds. During that dolly shot, it stops right as the shot ends, 
and he arrives at the door and confronts Dalton. The whole thing actually lasts only about seven seconds, Josh, but it's so intense and it's so crucial because nothing ever is the same for those characters or the audience after that. We realize that anything could happen. And I love that there's such power to it. Of course, power in Denzel's presence, his physical presence on frame, but we are watching a character at his most powerless in that moment. And the technique here highlights that not a shock to say you could have filled this top five list very easily with signature Spike Lee moments that involve Denzel Washington. Their collaborations have just been that good here working with Matthew Libatique on Inside Man. I love the way this film looks. I really love everything about Inside Man. And that's one of my favorite moments. All right. I'm going to double down on your double dally pick with my number one. And you're right. This technique is employed for a variety of reasons throughout Lee's films. Uh, heard from a listener, Paul Costello, on my Larson on Film Facebook page, who nicely summed that up. He said, the character-mounted dolly shot is, to me, Spike's single most consistent and recognizable visual tick. It places the characters on a path from which they cannot divert. Denzel Washington and Malcolm X and mm-hmm. Inside Man, there's yours. In a moment, they cannot leave. He cites Philip Seymour Hoffman in 25th Hour or in a world which revolves around them. Washington again in Mo Better Blues, your other pick. Paul names my choice there too. My number one spikely shot, it is Denzel Washington's Malcolm X floating toward his assassination in Lee's 1992 biopic. Now, in that New York Times piece that we've cited, Mikado Murphy describes this exact shot this way. He glides through at a medium shot, a look on his face that seems to project knowledge of his fate, while Sam Cooke's A Change Is Gonna Come plays on the soundtrack. Okay, so why is this Lee's signature double dolly shot, to my mind? I like the tension at play here. I like that it is, yes, perhaps Lee's most showy technique, but it's used for the film's most subdued or mournful moment. Now, why is it my number one Spike Lee shot for this list? I think it literally visualizes the pull of history. The forces that have their say, even over a man as determined and iconoclastic as Malcolm X. So Lee has spent his whole career pushing back against those very forces. His subversion of Birth of a Nation and Black Klansman is a perfect example of that. And in this shot, this this push-pull, I don't think has ever been better represented than this shot in Malcolm X. No, that's so well said. He is being pulled inexorably to that moment. He simply can't can't escape it. it. Whereas even as I said in the shot in Inside Man, he's lacking some agency. It's a complete contrast to the total lack of agency in that moment from Malcolm X. Such a great scene, such a great movie. And I'm going to end with, of course, another great movie. One you've already mentioned. My number one Spike Lee scene comes from Do the Right Thing. And if you're a regular listener and you're thinking, isn't Do the Right Thing in the Pantheon? And so it should be ineligible for these lists. Well, we do tend to make exceptions when we are doing these kind of career retrospectives. And it simply seemed wrong to talk about our favorite Spike Lee shots without thinking about Do the Right Thing. So I'm going with the opening credits. Of course, Fight the Power, a driving force behind that from Public Enemy. And I think 
one of the reasons it's number one, Josh, is because it's the first spike image that jumps into my head. And if there are other people out there who have a similar experience, perhaps it's because it's the first Spike Lee image many of us saw. And it is the setup to a masterpiece. Rosie Perez plays Tina. She's Mookie's girlfriend, the mother of his son, Hector. I haven't seen Do the Right Thing in a while, but a fairly minor role in the film overall. But she is the first character we meet and in her dancing holds the DNA of the entire movie. It's part of the credit sequence. I do think that it's hard to pick a single shot and some might pick a different one. For me though, Josh, it is that very first static image. And I think how it's set up is key. We get the universal logo, 40 acres and a mule, Spike Lee joint, the title, and it's all with a more traditional Spike Lee jazz score underneath it. Here it's a lone saxophone playing kind of wistfully. And then a fade to black, the music fades. Fight the Power begins with those frame jump cuts of a silhouetted Perez moving within the space. She's on that sidewalk in front of one of the stoops, though it seems pretty clearly on a soundstage. And that music cue from horn to hip-hop is your first indication, certainly not your last, that this isn't going to be another neighborhood movie. It's going to be intense. It's going to shake you out of your seat. And that first downbeat on one, the camera starts in a long shot showing Perez's whole body, and then dollies forward, stopping right as she turns to face us. And the lighting changes and the credits begin. It's not a dolly shot. Actually, that push forward looks to me handheld. It's really shaky, which also makes it even more unsettling. It's not smooth and fluid by design. It kind of gives you the sense as an audience member that you're almost rushing to the stage just as the curtain has dropped. And you're going to have a front row seat to this moment. It's 13 seconds long, the shot, that opening shot. And there's a grace to Perez's movements, just as there's a grace to so many of the interactions and activity we see in the neighborhood over the course of the movie. But of course, there's this tension and anger underneath it all. And you see it in the violent way she jerks her body. She moves her fists as if she's throwing them like a boxer, like Radio Raheem does later in the film, like she does later in the credit sequence, actually wearing a boxer's clothing and wearing boxing gloves her face is clenched she's not smiling or ever looks happy while she's dancing the way most people do when they're dancing and yet here's that incongruity again that dissonance there's a joy in simply watching a body move that freely and expressively on camera and i love that it does start with movement but it doesn't use much of it at all the whole sequence does it because perez is doing all the work for us within the frame and we get that lighting technique again it actually goes back, or in this case, it would have been somewhat of the inspiration for, I suppose, that orangish-red glow again from the windows in the apartments, just like the house in Malcolm X in that flashback. These vivid yellow windows suggesting heat, literal and figurative, that is such a crucial part of the film. And yes, we just should have called this list maybe our top five Spike Lee and Ernest Dickerson shots, because here he is again at number one. That sequence is electric. The last time I saw it, it wasn't too long ago, actually. I was doing a, a, a talk at a college. We were breaking down scenes from Do the Right Thing, and I had to start right with that scene. Mm-hmm. You put it on in a room full of people, and it's like just the energy yeah. that runs through from the screen through the whole crowd. There, There's really nothing like it. So definitely an honorable mention yeah. for me. One of those Do the Right Thing selections I considered. Those are our top five Spike Lee shots. Speaking of honorable mentions... Josh, I 
feel like we could go on forever, but did you have a couple? Yeah, I'll try to keep it brief. But the other do the right thing one that I did consider besides the love hate sequence that felt more like a sequence to me, though, um, is just the shot of those three guys on the street under the umbrella on the sidewalk against that. Mm-hmm. Red brick wall. I, I haven't, because it was just an honorable mention, I haven't put the brain power towards why I think of that all the time when do the right thing comes to mind, but I do. It's one that jumps out at me. We spent some time on it in our review, mentioned it here at the start of this segment, the portraits in the crowd shots from Black Klansman. I think that's going to go down yeah, as an all-timer for, for his sure. career. Crooklyn, you mentioned the distorted sequence. Uh, the cinematographer there is Arthur Jaffa. There's also a crazy upside down double yeah. dolly shot yeah. in with Spike Lee. With Spike Lee is in it and it like glue sniffers yeah. there. So it's like capturing their high and turns them upside down. Real, really crazy. And then one more here I'll mention. It comes from his documentary, When the Levees Broke. And uh, I kept it off because it's news footage. It's found footage. And I felt, well, that really doesn't have a place. But the more you talked in our review about his use of that sort of material, I feel like I could have squeezed it on. Mm-hmm. It's another really distressing image, though. It's one shot of an elderly woman, Ethel Freeman, who died, and this is actually of her corpse, outside of the convention center during Hurricane Katrina. And she was with her son, and there was nowhere for him to bring her body or her when she was alive, obviously. And there's just this shot of her slumped in a wheelchair. Wow. And, and, le- and it just, it, it kind of, you know, though it's found footage in a way, captures so much of the things Lee has wanted us to see and face throughout his career. So. Yeah. Thought about that one as well. I certainly thought about the faces in the crowd in Black Klansmen and a couple more from 25th Hour. I do expect some feedback. I'll try to head it off at the pass here from people who love that film and couldn't believe I chose that sequence, the overlooking Ground Zero, when we also could choose Monty's bathroom rant, which I don't think quite works because it's more of a sequence. But the way that sequence starts with Ed Norton staring into the mirror, the angle, the way it's framed, the fact that it is his reflection talking back to him, it's a compelling shot, a compelling scene. All three double dolly sequences in 25th Hour. Norton gets one. Paquin gets a great one. Philip Seymour Hoffman gets a great one. I really couldn't pick between them and just decided to go in another direction. Some other good options from Malcolm X. I love early in the film when we see the young kind of hoodlum days of Red and Shorty, played by Spike Lee, his friend there. And when they start swaying, when they got their their outfits on and the camera tracks along with them mm-hmm. from in front of them as they're swaying down the street. And then later, there's a moment where he collapses, where Red collapses to the ground in a park. And Spike Lee's looking over him and he's talking to him about how he used to be a big shot. And it's a direct reference to admitted by Spike Lee, direct reference to Billy Wilder's ace in the hole. Great shot where Kirk Douglas collapses to the ground. Crooklyn, not only the upside down glue sniffers, but another glue sniffing sequence that's a double dolly shot that then goes bonkers is Troy, the main character's nightmare of being chased by the glue sniffers and being forced to sniff the glue. And then she ends up not only floating kind of figuratively in this spikely way, but actually floating off the ground. She starts levitating in the camera with her. It's this great crane shot inside man. When the camera pulls back on the shot of a kid, a young African-American kid sitting with Dalton within the safe and just the way that's framed. I love, there are so many more, I'll just throw out there, I'd love to hear from people what they have from He Got Game. 
because I love He Got Game. Yeah, it's really Another good. Denzel. It's one of my top five Spike Lee films. And I did try to scan through it as best as I could and do some internet searching just to try to see what was generated. I remember lots of moments from the film, but none specifically driven by a visual choice, even though I know they're all over it because it's a Spike Lee movie. I couldn't land on one, but I just want to give He Got Game some love. We hope you will share some of your favorite Spike Lee shots. Our email address is feedback at filmspotting.net. Josh, that's also where listeners can leave us feedback anytime about any topic because that is our episode. It is. If you want to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, you can find Adam at Filmspotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Over in the show archives at Filmspotting.net, there are reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. And that's where you can vote in the current Film Spotting poll. We're asking you, what is your favorite Steven Spielberg decade? To order Film Spotting t-shirts or other merch, visit Filmspotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at Filmspotting.net slash newsletter out this weekend digitally. We talked about it earlier, Spike Lee's De Five Blood. Sounds like, Josh, definitely recommended by you and recommended by me, even though I was mixed on it ultimately, because it's Spike Lee and certainly deserves to be seen and deserves to be talked about. Next week on the show, no really, we will finally get to I suppose unless something else comes up and changes yeah, our mind, let's, Josh. Let's we're not fluid with guarantee this. Guarantee it. We do plan. Yes. How's that? To have our forty fifth anniversary Sacred Cow conversation about Steven Spielberg's Jaws. And for a little bit of fun, a kind of spin on the top five, we'll power rank the Spielberg decades. You know what? Little teaser here too. I've got some Jaws 45th anniversary Blu-ray discs loaded with extra features to give away next week on the show. Very nice. This extra time is giving me a chance, Adam, to revisit one Spielberg title. I've been watching a handful of them over the last couple of weeks, but it's going to come down to this revisit of one title that could shift my whole top five because I'm I'm really str- wow. I'm really struggling with this. So we'll see what happens. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.